welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Like many of you, I get quite concerned reading the news each day. I worry about the direction of our planet, our governments, the dire warnings of the scientific community, and what sort of world our children will live in decades from now when many of us are gone. A new book called Mad Monk Manifesto a Prescription for Evolution, Revolution, and Global Awakening recently caught my eye. Advice on living a healthy, conscious lifestyle is always something I'm curious to hear, and I find it engaging and refreshing when it's delivered in a straightforward and urgent manner that doesn't sugarcoat the message. Mad Monk Manifesto is such a book, and Monk Yoon Ro is such an author. In this conversation, Monk Yoon Ro and I trace his discovery of Taoism and ancient Chinese wisdom growing up in a Manhattan flat. We talk about his training and practice in martial arts. We talk about his concern for environmentalism, the roles of Tai Chi, the concept of Wu Wei, and the role of social media in society. Monk Yun Ro was ordained in China as a Taoist monk in 2012. His writings and teachings propagate Taoist ideas and focus on environmental conservation and political and social justice. Monk Yun Ro began his formal martial arts training in 1980 and practiced a wide range of Chinese Kung Fu styles before settling on Tai Chi. A student of some of China's top Tai Chi grandmasters, he was named Tai Chi Master of the Year at the 2011 World Congress on Qigong and Traditional Chinese Medicine. And Yun Ro was the keynote speaker at the International Tai Chi Symposium in Louisville, Kentucky. Yun Ro is the author of Mad Monk Manifesto. And without further delay, I hope you enjoy our conversation. so happy to be with you. Thank you. I'm sure many listeners would be interested in your Taoist origin. Can you just kind of give a brief summary of when you were first exposed to Tao, Taoism, and Taoist practices? Uh, I, I grew up in a I grew up in an unusual setting in Manhattan. My father was uh, probably the most famous heart specialist uh, in the world in my youth, and he was the doctor for kings and princes and presidents and captains of industry and Hollywood moguls and stars and uh, Nobel laureates and all the rest of it. And I had this parade of people going through our New York City flat. Uh, and I got to see these, I guess you'd call them celebrities, up close and personal on an almost daily basis. And something that occurred to me pretty early, I want to say, you know, as early as maybe 12 years old, was that even though these folks were supposed to have and be and do and represent all the 
all the things that we're all supposed to want out of our lives. <clears throat> I found them to be pretty much just like everybody else. Some of them, their kids hated them. Some of them, they, they were not very nice people. Many of them were depressed, uh, ir irritable, um, angry, and on and on. And, and when I saw this, I began to wonder, since I appeared to be uh, having, I appeared to be sold a bill of goods about uh, what it was we ought to want out of life by seeing what the truth of these folks looked like up close, I, I wondered what other bills of goods I was being sold. <laughs> and I began to make inquiries on my own in my childish way into things like religion and politics and society and money and career and identity and service and on and on. And in that process, I delved into my mom's library she was a philosophy student and a student of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. And so she had a pretty good, you know, library of stuff for me to read. And of course, at 12, I didn't understand any of it, much less things as esoteric as, you know, Chinese mysticism. But um, I, I, I was a seeker right from the start. And I guess, you know, you could say that people are born with this kind of gene, uh, maybe. Uh, you can imagine what a great joy I was to my parents. And... Uh, and so I think sometimes we all uh, either come to this on our own or we really don't come to it in an organic and genuine way. So I, I came to it on my own. I made inquiries and I very early found out, sorry for the long-winded answer to your direct question, but I, I, I found out pretty early that there was something about the Asian philosophies when I read them. Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism uh, in particular, that resonated with me. And I cannot, you know, honestly represent that I in any way understood what the heck I was reading back then. I have enough trouble with it now. But, um, you know, I, there, there was a gut instinct that I was connected to it. And whether that's because of, I, I was uh, a Taoist monk in a past life, or whether it was just because it was exotic and seemed more interesting to me, or that I was just rebellious and wanted something different, or that there was just some truth to those words that shone through maybe any or all of those things. Um, but, you know, my exposure to an interest in Taoism uh, started young. When did it really click? Like, when did you start to take it seriously? I would say after my undergraduate years at Yale. Um, I began studying martial arts. I began reading all kinds of books about martial arts. Um, I always wanted sort of the complete package of the intellectual and philosophical understanding, as well as the physical experience and abilities. And so, you know, I, I think I probably began with Japanese uh, works uh, because a lot of the things that were available about martial arts in those days were about Japanese karate. So, you know, they were Bushido books and they were, uh, you know, the Early martial arts classics that were available in the U.S., Herigl's book on archery and that sort of thing. Um, and, and so um, once I began to realize, wait a second, you know, this thing called Zen is actually Chinese Taoism uh, salted with um, some Japanese culture and a sprinkling of Buddhism, um, I, I, I began to want to go to the source. So I, I would say that was probably sometime around, you know, maybe just a tiny bit less than 40 years ago now. Okay, so 
then I know that you were ordained as a monk in 2012 at a Taoist temple in China. So can you tell me a little bit about the lineage that you chose to pursue, maybe a little bit at your teacher, and maybe just a tad about the ordination process itself? Sure. So the subject of um, Taoist sects has been um, one that has warranted many academic tomes. <laughs> and it is a very complex and, and complicated issue, partly because I think, you know, there has never really been one China. And, you know, China is an enormous country full of different cultures, and there are influences from every direction. Um, and in one way, you could say that, you know, Chinese history is itself um, at, at, at its core um, the repeated story of nomadic incursions into a centralized, civilized, agriculturally developed society and the influences that those incursions have had. So just like the rest of China, there are many, many places in China where Taoism has flourished. It's had different sources and uh, the, um, the Taoist scholar Louis Komyati talks about the porosity or permeability of, uh, of Taoism as a philosophy, religion, and uh, social movement. <clears throat> and that porosity implies that, you know, there are times when Taoism will take one thing or another, Buddhism, Confucianism, and other folk religions under its wing for political reasons, so as to be practical, because Taoism is above all else that, and not lose adherence. So there have been times, for example, in, in the imperial court where Buddhism has been in favor and other times where Taoism has been in favor. And the times when Taoism has been in favor is subsequent to the entrance of Buddhism, uh, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago or more, um, it, it, it were those times when Taoists went, you know, we got that too. You want you want river gods and you want you know what you want reincarnation we we got all that stuff too you know just come on in we'll put up a statue of the Buddha in the corner so so one the sect in which the lineage in which I was ordained a monk is not the same lineage in which I was brought up in Taoism nor the one of my martial arts masters so uh, that that sect in which I was ordained uh, is called the Chuanzhen or pure, whole, whole truth lineage, I guess, is a decent translation. And by whole truth, they mean, you know, we got, we got it all here. You know, we, we got everything. Come on in. And, and I do remember that during my, my time in, the, in that monastery, you know, there were statues of Buddha and statues of Kuan Yin and so on around. And, and there were some other local gods, you know, that, that spoke more to um, the folk religion aspects of Taoism. So this is why, I, you know, we, we don't we could spend hours on this subject, um, right? So, but the but the other lineage in which I spent have spent most of my my training time in the last, you know, let's say more or less twenty five years now. Um, that has been a lineage which is more focused on self cultivation and the philosophy of Lao Tzu, and less on the rituals and so on. 
Regarding uh, the process of ordination, you know, I don't have a whole lot to say about that because, you know, there are people now uh, who have turned all this <clears throat> business of becoming a monk into, into a business. And so, you know, there's courses that people give online and you follow a certain you know, uh, syllabus and you, you learn this, that and the other thing and then you, and then you become a monk. And you're given some kind of certificate by the, the this agency, you know, or, or business that's online and so on. And, and there's some centers um, uh, here in the U.S. that do this kind of thing. And there's some in Europe and some in China. Um, for me, uh, it happened a little differently. Um, my teacher in martial arts brought my work promoting traditional Chinese culture, philosophy, and martial arts to the attention of folks, you know, officials in China. That means local and, and, and national officials. I say national because everything has to be, you know, get the, the stamp of the government anytime a foreigner does anything. And increasingly, sadly, anytime anybody does anything um, in China. That's a whole other subject. So, so you know, I was, I was. This was to me a great honor to be to be ordained this way, and then I was elevated subsequently in another ceremony. Anyway, it's um, it's been a really, it's been a great thing for me. But primarily, honestly, the most meaningful part of it to me is that it is for myself a measure of my own devotions. It's not that I want to go around wearing it like a like a badge, you know. Gotcha. Something you said a moment ago, um, your devotion to martial arts is something that really captivates me within the book that we're going to talk about a lot in just a second. Um, but I know that you were named the Tai Chi Master of the Year in 2011 at the World Congress on Qigong and Traditional Chinese Medicine, which is pretty cool. And so as a deep practitioner of Tai Chi, I'm curious if you can discuss the role that this martial art performs in like your day-to-day normal life like why why do you think that westerners should consider incorporating tai chi into their wellness regimens so that's actually two different questions it is. Let me sorry see about let that. me see yeah let me see if i can hit them for you um I, uh, maybe even there's maybe even three in there so let me let me make a stab um the most important takeaway is this that one of the things that distinguishes Taoism as a philosophy is this predicate idea that in order to awaken our minds and cultivate and elevate our consciousness, we have to have a physical foundation for the brain to do those things we are asking it to do. So that means that means that if you're if you're not strong and healthy in your body, you don't have the required material to transform into a spiritual human being. You can't do it if if you're sickly or if you're dissolute or if you're undisciplined or uh, other things, simply because there is, you know, we understand it now in Western terms as, you know, sort of a mind-body thing, and we know about neurotransmitters and hormones, and we know about the blood-brain barrier, and we know about the electrical conductivity of the heart, and we know about 
you know, the, the, the cat-sized brain we have in our gut and, and, and all that stuff. But, you know, back then, uh, in the origin of, of, this, of these practices, it, they, they just made a priori observations that if you want to really do these things, elevate your mind, if you really want to understand the way the world works, understand this thing that we call Tao, which is a, a subject for a different question, then, you know, you, your brain has to be working right. You have to be relatively free of impulses and distractions and compulsions and all the rest of it. So the reason... The primary reason from a spiritual point of view to pursue physical and mental practices like uh, meditation, uh, Tai Chi Chen, Qigong, if, if you want to elevate your mind, these things are the prerequisite. Sorry, I just got something popped up on my screen and took my train of thought there for a moment. So much for the stable mind. Mm. Um, and that's why I don't spend much time at the computer. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, um, so so as far as myself, you know, I, I find that unless I practice uh, on a daily basis, and I, and I practice quite an unreasonable number of hours for the average person, but this is after all my thing. Um, I, I don't I don't sleep as well. Um, you know, I have aches and pains. Um, I've been doing this a long time now, so I no longer have the body of a very young man. Um, and and uh, and I find that you know the physical practices absolutely give me the focus and serenity I need to be concerned with the big picture stuff most of the time, as opposed to the pimple on my neck or the guy giving me the finger from the pickup truck next to me as he tries to squeeze me off the road and on and on, right? So I'm able to keep my eye on the prize a bit better on account of what my physical practice has done to my sort of neuro my, uh, my neurotransmitters and my hormones and my general well-being. And then as far as why everybody should, should do these kinds of physical practices, um, I don't know that everybody should. Um, you know, I, I think it, I think Tai Chi and Qigong and meditation are not actually for everybody. And despite the spin of the New Age movement, which has, you know, Tai Chi as um, most important for its foundational uh, contribution to the anti-falling pro programs for elderly people at community hospitals uh, or... Um, you know, another new age spin is, uh, you know, the Tai Chi is about uh, communing with the birds in nature in the park for the elderly and mm -hmm. this sort of stuff. I mean, all of these things are completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And although although you could do them, right? And so there are fall, you know, prevention programs that are based on Tai Chi principles. And there are elderly people who go and commune with the birds in nature in the park and do Tai Chi. But none of that speaks to the essence of the art, which is, you know, a battlefield combat system. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, peace and love folks don't really want to know that Tai Chi is a martial art at all. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. Sorry for my three-pronged question there. Um, That's okay. Yeah. I, I get really excited in these types of conversations because there's so many things that I want to ask from all of my guests because, uh, you know, this is a, a just a, a – a, a project for me that helps me explore all the ideas that the world has to offer. So I try to squeeze in as much as I can. Um, let's talk about your newest book. Got it right here. Loved it. Read it. Mad Monk Manifesto. 
a prescription for evolution, revolution, and global awakening. This book starts out to me with like a sincere urgency in which you uh, say in the book, this is an 11th hour emergency survival manual. And many people might think that Taoism is merely about, you know, things like going with the flow. But your tone invites us to act on page one. Tell me what motivated this urgent call to action. So before we dive into the manifesto, let me just make one small response to your statement of enthusiasm about the questions. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to represent that I am equally enthusiastic about the answers or at the best stab that I can make at answers. Um, but but um, it, it is true that the ability to focus on one of them at a time is part and parcel of what I've gotten from the uh, from the practice. So otherwise, without it, I would be a flea in heat jumping around, you know, with a tension span like that. Um, and, and, and yeah, so just to be able to follow the, um, uh, the, the threads of these things without losing them, uh, which I may not be able to do always, but I try. Uh, yeah, so it's, so I understand, I understand your, I understand your point. Um, so as far as the manifesto, uh, look, it, it is a general misapprehension that since I mentioned, you know, peace and love folks, um, and I like to think of myself as a peace and love a person, um, uh, although I, I suppose my students would contest the, contest the <laughs> assertion. Uh, but, but, uh, but let me say that um, there is a misunderstanding about the role of monks. You know, there are lay monks and there are monastery monks. There are monks that, you know, go off into the mountains and, uh, you know, sequester themselves in a cave for 40 years and their remains are found, you know, hundreds of years later staring at the wall and so on, facing the wall, no longer staring, of course. Uh, but but uh, there is also a long tradition of monks who are living lives in society who are working to become, you know, in the, what in, in other tradition, uh, in the Indian tradition would be called bodhisattvas as opposed to arhats, right? So people who are looking to contribute for the wellness of all sentient beings as opposed to, you know, their own elevation and departure from this plane. Um, so, and, and there isn't really in Taoism, at least, and, you know, that is, a, as I'm sure you probably know, that is... A, which of those two paths is greater or more legitimate is a big subject of contention in Buddhism and has led to fracturing of that religion slash philosophy. But in Taoism, we really don't have that kind of thing. Um, you know, people come and go. I go to the monasteries. I can be there for a while and then it can come out again. Um, you know, there's there's a free interplay. And in fact, uh, one of the missions that I was given was to take these Taoist ideas, not necessarily even call them Taoist but just go out and seed them in the Western world with my TV shows and my books and so on. So I, I guess, you know, the idea of an activist monk is not really all that rare, although in our popular imagination, it seems to be something relatively novel. But traditionally, it's not particularly so. You have only to look at the monks of the Shaolin Temple who provided you know, specialized, special forces for the emperor um, over hundreds of years of Chinese history, if not longer. Um, and you have only to look at the situation now in Myanmar and see um, how monks are responding to what they feel 
is an attack on their religion and culture and you know which some people some part of the world's lens may see differently but anyway the point is that it's to see monks uh, in active roles in society and culture uh, is is not is not unique by any means and and so you know as far as what motivates me is you know i i have um I suppose I have a little bit of an outrage problem, uh, which I work through in my practice. It's one of the things that, you know, uh, requires the practice for me because I have a very, very keen sense of social justice. I guess I was born with that or I got it from my mom. She has that seemed to have left me with those things. Uh, but also, um, as after having spent years as a biology and zoology student and a medical student, I'm very aware of sort of the biological take on things. And when there is an imbalance of power, which often leads to cultural and social injustice, imbalance and, you know, inequity, I tend to get my back up looking at that. So, uh, I was motivated to write this manifesto and to call it something as aggressive as a manifesto, which is not the usual thing coming from a monk, uh, on account of seeing the things that were going on in our culture, particularly starting uh, with the election in 2016. As a scientist and somebody who cares about scientific issues, was it sort of a relief to you when you found and discovered that Taoism doesn't feel to be at odds with what scientific research shows to be accurate about the physical world? Not only is it not at odds, and, and this is a really lovely question because I think, you know, people generally um, in religious pursuits have to reach some kind of equilibrium or peace with either lying to themselves or ignoring things um, in order to keep faith or belief in things that seem either supernatural or incredible. Um, to me, I have generally not as a person before I, even, even before I began to consider this question in the context of Taoism and science, because Taoism is a sort of science, I have never been particularly swayed by the rational side, or I should be, I want to say it differently. I've never been particularly swayed by the argument that the rational reasoning side of humanity is our best or most important side. So I see it as a very important side, but I'm not sure that logic and rationality overrides morality and compassion. And I understand in saying that, that there are limits to our abilities in all three of those arenas. That is to say, we are limited in our ability to uh, make rational decisions and thoughts on account of the fact that we have a very limited sensorium and are absent the vast, vast majority of information about how that really the world works and, and what's really going on. So we're bumbling and stumbling around in the dark Therefore, every time we allege to be rational, we could at best say that we're rational given the information we have, but we have to understand that that information is almost nothing. Um, so rather than thinking that, you know, 
science will soon uncover all the mysteries in the universe and we'll know everything. I, I am not in that school. I think we will un uncover probably very little of anything in our entire history ever. Um, and, and then as far as the other sides of it, um, understanding the definitions of compassion, you know, the compassionate thing to do in any situation is not always obvious. Sometimes the compassionate thing to do might look like cruelty or tough love or something that might not be really um, clear to someone who hasn't experienced, you know, wrestling with that question before. And then um, when it comes to emotions and it comes to, uh, there was a third thing I mentioned, we talked about rationality, um, compassion and something else. I've lost it now. But anyway, the point is that we are just really limited little beings. And, you know, whether, as has been suggested, our purpose as a species is only to potentiate the birth of strong AI and then to fade into the background like ants as it, you know, proceeds to uncover the truths of the universe and understand, help the universe understand itself and all that stuff could be. I, 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 I take the Taoist view, which is interesting idea. Let's wait and see what happens. <laughs> So, you know, and nature as well is very essential in Taoism, and there's a lot of discussion of climate change and impending climate disaster within the book. Um, and how does your, and you're from Manhattan, which is a place in the country that will, you know, suffer the effects of climate change in the coming decades. How does your Taoist practice help you frame your views and actions about the scientific consensus around climate change? Are those two things related? I'm not a city boy, so uh, whatever happens to Manhattan will, um, you know, I, I left there early and gladly, eagerly. Um, whatever happens to that part of the world will have my great compassion and interest on account of the loss of lives and, and the fate of sentient beings, but not, not because, you know, the buildings and, the, and stuff are underwater. Um, I, I feel like we are, I, I chose the... Um, what you referred to as the urgent tone of the book, because I'm a guy that travels a lot and I see a lot of things traveling around the world. And I have kind of a bird's eye view of the enormous destruction that we are wreaking upon planet earth, which is our home. And absent any credible plan to leave and survive elsewhere in space or on another planet, which is a really lovely and fun, I, I, I suppose, science fiction idea, but doesn't really engage how deeply entrenched and enmeshed we as individuals and as a species are in the larger natural world around us from the viruses and bacteria and parasites that are around us and on us and in us to all the other the energy and the chemical uh, realities of forests and all the other things that we need i think that we have pursued a two-pronged fatal path and one prong uh, comes from the Abrahamic faiths, which have suggested to us that the earth was given to us by um, a, a, you know, a being who exists between our ears um, and nowhere else. Uh, and and uh, in order to justify our appetites and our ambitions and our greed, 
there is a uh, there is a tenet that says that all of this is for us to lay waste to as we wish. It is our sandbox. It is our playground and our toilet. And so that one very very highly dubious and now obviously wrong-headed and destructive point of view about who human beings are and especially so in relation to this earth has has been an enormously catastrophic happening the second one of course is science the idea that you know technology can fix everything and that we just keep breaking it and killing and destroying and killing but that's okay because our tech will pull us through in the book you wrote that um Earth is not a friendly place for non-human animals these days. And you also just mentioned killing, and you also mentioned sentient beings just a little while ago. So to me, it seems like a lot of our pressing issues are related to food as well. Do you see diet and food and nutrition as playing a vital role within your spiritual practice at all? So let's just clarify make this bridge between these two topics a little bit easier to cross. Um, There was a Norwegian philosopher in the early 70s called Arne Ness, N-A-E-S-S, and he coined this idea of the earth as a superorganism and uh, all the beings on it um, contributing to this organism in much the way that bacteria and worms and viruses that make up the human body, um, which are actually a little more than half of the cells in our body are not human cells. I can't remember, it's 52% are human cells or 48% are human cells, but in any case, we're roughly half human. And the rest of us is other things living on and through and in us. So we, we are an organism that is itself host to millions of other things. Each one, Greg and Yunro, as as an entity of itself, as an illusion. And so too, the earth is not one thing. It is a super organism that is a a combination of all the things living in it. Currently, you know, human beings are acting like a cancer. So we are fitting very well the, the model of a cancer in the sense that we are producing toxins, we are overpopulating, we're squeezing out other kinds of cells, right? So other species. Um, And we are laying physical waste to our host. So this is a pretty strong and robust analogy, and it isn't one that I like to use, or it's not one that I relish, and nobody likes to hear it, because who wants to think about human beings as being a cancer? And I get you know, push back from a religious people about saying something like this because, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not taking into account our, our divine nature and all the rest of that. And the answer is yes, in fact, I'm not. I'm looking at the biological reality of who we are actually, not in fantasy, and what we actually do in reality. So when I talk about these sentient beings, and, you know, we'll get to diet in a, in a second, you can see more clearly now, I hope, the bridge to that. Um, I, I'm saying that Our ideas of intelligence, of what it is to be alive, what it is to feel, what it is to think, what it is to know, what it is to have relationships, what it is to have family, what it is to have memory, what it is to have hope, all those things are largely not restricted or limited to human beings. Rather, we are an evolutionary branch of a much wider, broader process that includes 
everything from earthworms and, 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 you know, little amoeba on up to us. And that at some stage, uh, the complexity of the being, you know, gets to be enough to have all those qualities that I just listed. And, and so, you know, in reality, squirrels have families and birds have language and uh, all of them have feelings and all of them care about their relatives and all of them care about themselves and their lives and their, their cohorts. And the idea that everything else is just dumb and here for us is, is a terrible and destructive and cruel idea. And it has been embraced and propounded and espoused for millennia because it allows us to pretend that we are not causing suffering. And it also allows us to pretend we are special, mm. uh, all of which is not true, uh, and, and the former of which is not acceptable. So when you ask me about diet in relation to uh, uh, the spiritual life, the core answer to that issue is, can we be healthy? Can we be happy? Can we live a long life? Can we be free, as free of suffering in connection with what we eat by a, relying only on a plant-based diet? And the answer is an emphatic yes. And given that fact, given all the data that is constantly coming out about how uh, an animal-based diet causes inflammation and cancer and all these other things that kill us, and how we are healthier and live longer and feel better on a plant-based diet, then we have to look at why are we not pursuing one? And the answer to that is because of the traditions and now, these days, the corporate messages and the special interest groups got milk, you know, where's the beef? These are people who just want to make money from us and they want to profit on our ignorance. So. Bottom line to wrap up this question is if we can live healthy, long lives without causing damage and suffering and torture to other sentient beings, why would we not? Yeah, I agree. Um, that's something that I've been changing a lot in my life over the last four years as well. Um, can we talk a little bit about your meditation practice for a second? Yes. So Taoist uh, meditation, again, is one of those subjects that has occupied many tomes. Sure. And, and, and so, so I'll, give, I'll give the short and sweet on uh, the meditation practice that is in my own primary tradition. And the tenet of that meditation is that one thing we don't want to do which many modern derivative meditation styles, whether they're mindfulness or um, uh, some of the, you know, metta and, and vipassana and other uh, newer forms of meditation, which the, the Buddhists will, will have their hair stand up on end when, they, when I call those things newer, but we have to remember that Taoism is very old, much, much older than Buddhism, and traces its roots back to sort of Neolithic proto-China before there was a China. Um, and, and so, you know, it's very shamanic in a lot of ways and, and goes back to sort of more um, visceral, uh, I use the word advisedly, uh, and uh, uh, 
natural uh, forms of meditation that have less intellectual and cultural overlay than many other forms of meditation. So the primary thing to do is to just see if you can give yourself something to do with your mind that allows the real you to present itself absent the chatter of the learned and imaginary you. So we, we stand as much as lie down or sit. Um, I prefer, because I'm a martial arts guy, I prefer standing meditation to seated and lying meditation, although there's nothing wrong with those. And, uh, you know, lying meditation often leads to people going to sleep. And actually, that's okay, too, because from the Taoist point of view, you know, if you're hungry, eat. If you're tired, sleep. Right? Don't, don't force things. Um, I, I, I like the standing because it represents a little bit of a stronger, longer, bigger step in the direction of that foundation building of the physical body that supports the opening mind, which I mentioned at the beginning of our chat. Okay. So, and you, you said something a moment ago about the real you. And you know that I come at this conversation as a high school teacher. Uh, I mentioned my students that I've taught in the past in one of our emails, and I was really uh, touched and I chuckled a little bit whenever you talked about how you'd really like to visit with 18-year-old American students to talk about Taoism. And whenever you said real you just a second ago, I thought about my students, and I would teach about these concepts in a, a normal high school classroom with hard, straight-backed plastic chairs where students would cram into a desk at, you know, 8-something in the morning. Uh, they'd have to be there. Basically, you know, people are forcing them to be there. And we talked a lot about Wu Wei in this, concept, in this context. And so I want to talk about Wu Wei for just a second. And I want you to basically speak like you were speaking to a high school classroom. So if I invited you to do a discussion with my 18-year-old students in like an American high school classroom, how would you explain Wu Wei to that audience? So, you know, I've, I've done it um, to, to college undergrads who are not, you know, so much older. They, yeah. might, even, they might even be 18 or 19. <laughs> and I've done it to, to grade school kids, too. I, I can't just, you know, as I'm talking, I'm trying to remember if I've... If I've addressed, excuse me, if I've addressed high school seniors, and maybe I have, I don't, I don't know. Um, so this is this is actually not, I think, such a difficult concept. Um, let me go back just for a second to this idea of the real you, um, and there are many levels in which I could discuss that idea. It's not the same as Wu Wei, by the way, um, and and. We have in the Taoist tradition the idea that if I'm sitting here talking to you, I can fairly easily, you know, go out of my head and see myself talking to you. And in fact, technology makes this really easy because, you know, in the screen that I'm looking at your face as we talk on Skype, my own face is in a little corner of it. So I can actually see myself talking to you. Right. <laughs> so so let's just look at that for a second and go, OK. You know, is that in that little screen, is that the real me? And when I just waved at you and, you know, lifted my hand and I saw my own finger there, is that my own finger? And, and the answer is, you know, pretty clearly not, right? So I'm, I'm being rendered by the camera on the computer. 
But we don't really need the computer for that. You know, we have a pretty good sense of self as we walk through the day. It's the sense of self that makes people, you know, check their look in the mirror. It's the sense of self that makes them feel awkward when they walk into a room where nobody knows them and they don't know anybody either. It's, um, you know, it's a self-consciousness that when, you know, when you stumble and fall and spill your coffee uh, all over yourself as you're walking to your car from Starbucks, um, you, you know, a first instinct for many people might be to quickly look around and see, you know, who, who just saw that happen and how stupid do I look right now? So, so you know, we, we are actually accustomed to having a sense of ourself outside of ourself um, that is different from the one inside our head. And if we just extend that idea a little bit and go, look, you know, I can pretty easily say, okay, I, I see, I see that Unro in the, in the little square looking at, and I, and, and I know that that's not me. And then I can go a step further and say, look, I, I see, I, I can find the Unro watching the Unro, watching the Unro. Now I'm three levels up. And so on. So uh, there, there is a traditional way of looking at that in Taoist practice and saying that sort of the fifth one up. And, and there's a whole other explanation for this, which I'm not going to do now, but I, I think I do it in the book a little bit. Um, for the purposes of listeners now, I think we should just say that we need to, when I say, you know, the real you, I mean on practical terms in 2019 in the United States of America, what we're talking about is the non-tech you. We're talking about the you who is not addicted to their smartphone, who experiences anxiety, right? When when the phone, yes, you just lifted to show me yours, right? Uh, mine is not in evidence. I'm not exactly sure where it is. I have to look for it, but I know I have one, right? Uh, but but I'm not generally, uh, you know, I was kicked off Facebook years ago and took this to be, I, I never knew why they didn't tell me, but I took it to be such a great blessing. I was so grateful for it. I, I don't do a lot of social media. We'll talk about that at the end. I'll tell folks where they can find me for some little things. But I think sort of divorcing ourselves from the constant weapons of mass distraction that are launched in our direction every day and just sitting quietly with ourselves that is with our own thoughts and feelings, as uncomfortable as they may be, is the core beginning of a meditation practice and something that 18-year-old students are no doubt loath to do. Now, as far as Wu Wei goes... um, I think there is a prejudice against hanging out. There is a prejudice against the idea of doing nothing. It doesn't fit very well with the Protestant or the Puritan work ethic, right? It doesn't fit very well with the idea of coming to a country as we did, our forebears did to this country, and and killing all its indigenous uh, inhabitants and pushing through and making, you know, the pilgrims and their their flight west and the tough winters in Nebraska and all the rest of that stuff, right? In in other words, there is a national addiction and identification with the idea of push, 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 work, 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 um, and and go until you drop. 
overdo everything, extreme this, extreme that, extreme sports, maximum effort, give it a thousand percent. You know, I, I'm not interested unless you give me 110 percent and on and on and on. Th this kind of thing is seen as a badge of honor when in fact it must now be seen as a badge of slavery. To be taught never to pause and reflect, never to rest, never to consider your own health or other people around you in a mad dog rush to the top, a ladder climbing, step on everybody's head approach to life is unnatural, not something we are evolved to do, rather than being dog eat dog or violent monkeys as we are often seen. We actually triumphed as a species based on our cooperation and our altruism, not on our desire to shoot each other. But all of that is subsumed because other people want us to believe in all that competitive nonsense. They want us to believe that the only way to freedom and pleasure is work. And they want us to believe all that because they do not want us thinking deeply about anything. And they don't want us thinking deeply about anything because when we do, we begin to go, hey, wait a second, you know, Greg's a nice guy. I don't need to shoot him. I don't need to take his job. I don't need to push him out onto the street. I don't need to know. Why would I do that? How about, look at me, we got this, uh, this sticky bun here. Why don't we cut it in half and share it? Hey, great. How enjoyable would that be? You know, the problem there is that, you know, then they only sell one sticky bun instead of two. Mm. Right. So so when I say they, I'm talking about corporate forces. I'm talking about uh, government forces. I'm talking about cultural forces. I'm talking about anything that stops us from thinking and going, hey, wait a second. Is it really a great idea to trade a non-renewable resource time for a renewable one money? Really? Do we really need to spend our lives buying things we don't need with money we don't have and putting ourselves in ever more debt instead of going for a walk in the woods and enjoying the company of a lover or friend or family? Really? Is that, is that really what we're about? We got to buy more stuff. And if you think that it is, then you are one of the myriad victims of a system that has you well and truly in its thrall. So you asked me about Wu Wei, and Wu Wei is most simply sp represented as not that. Mm. Those ideas make a lot of sense to young people today, is what I've found. They really find themselves questioning the path that they have been placed on by their elders whenever you talk about that concept. Hmm. Speaking of uh, the non-renewable resource of time... I know that you are off to Asia in a few days. How are you going to spend? How are you going to spend your time while you're there? So uh, I have uh, I do this um, every couple, maybe twice a year. I go for three or four weeks uh, to live a secluded existence where I am not online. I am not available to my students and friends and coworkers in my various projects. Uh, and I want my time to be as empty as possible so as to concoct, plan, and deeply think through my next literary work. So 
the foundational work for my books takes place in those sessions of deep thinking. And I'm going to start a new one, uh, having just now this week delivered a, the one following the manifesto, which I hope we'll be able to talk about together in, in some months' time. I think you'll like it a lot. We definitely will. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more or get in touch? Uh, where is that weapon of mass distraction that people can find you? <laughs> so uh, I, I do have my website, which is monkyunro.com. It's M-O-N-K-Y-U-N as in Nancy, R-O-U.com. I'm also Monk Yunro on Twitter and on Instagram, where I do post photos sometimes of martial arts training and so on. All of my uh, 15 published books are available on my, through my website with direct links to booksellers, but of course also on Amazon and uh, other uh, Barnes & Noble and other places, and of course in bookstores. Fantastic. Well, Monkey and Row, this has been a delightful conversation. Um, I've learned a lot. And I'm so glad that we get to talk about so much today. And I definitely will be looking forward to having you back on to talk about the next work. And uh, I wish you the best on your upcoming trip. Thank you. And do have me out to talk to 18-year-olds sometime because if we can work that out as part of something I'm doing, that would be really fun. I'd love to see how that goes. We could talk more about it away. Thank you very much for having me on. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.